Good morning. Dave mentioned that Alan picked out the songs and then they couldn't be here today. And Alan didn't know what I was preaching, but boy, he sure picked out good songs for my sermon. So God works through his spirit in many and marvelous ways. You can turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be getting there in a little bit, but we're in a series of messages right now called Unleashed. Unleash God unleashing his church upon the world. Many young people that have grown up in the Xbox generation, if you know what an Xbox is, a device hooked up to the TV and play games and things, a lot of those young people have no clue about what a kaleidoscope is. You can see a kaleidoscope on the screen. I think the people in this service probably know what one is. I had one as a kid. Just a simple cylinder that contains mirrors and a lot of pieces of beads or glass or plastic, whatever, has a viewing hole on one end. And as you look through it, you see this wonderful display of colors. And every time that you turn it and the little pieces of glass or whatever move, there's just limitless patterns that change every time you reposition it. The kaleidoscope derives its name from three ancient Greek words, which are translated in English as beautiful, form, and observing tool. So a kaleidoscope literally means an observer of beautiful forms. I wonder sometimes if God has a kaleidoscope in heaven and that he looks down at us as humans the beautiful forms. We sang it this morning, didn't we? Red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. And obviously some people have more beautiful forms than others, right? <laughs> oh, well. After God made the universe and he made mankind, the Bible says God saw all that he had made, and it was very good in Genesis 1.31. And so God was thrilled with his entire creation Extra delighted in his special creation, mankind, because man was made how? In God's very own image. And when God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he gave them the DNA that would give birth to a world populated with people of all shapes and sizes and colors. Luke says over in Luke 17, 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so we may live in different places and speak different languages and have different shades of skin, but the fact is we are all descendants of that first couple, Adam and Eve. And therefore we all belong to one race, the human race. The church in Acts encompassed people of all nations, but the process of becoming a church that reached all kinds of people was not instantaneous. God's Spirit had to move in the hearts of the apostles and prod them to overcome the barriers that divided people in their day. And I pray God would do the same thing in our day, that he would move our hearts and prod us to overcome any kind of barriers that might separate us from anyone today. 
And I pray that we would boldly follow God's lead as he calls us to go beyond the racial and cultural barriers that seem to be there in our lives and ministries. But in the spring of A.D. 30, there was a multinational gathering of Jews and converts to Judaism that filled the streets of Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Passover, or of Pentecost. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. You're probably familiar with that chapter and what takes place on that day. But this was the day the apostles had waited for, the day that the Holy Spirit would come upon them with power. And Jesus couldn't have chosen a better day to unleash his church upon the world. And before the day was over, some 3,000 people had accepted the message of the gospel and they were baptized into Christ. So on day one, Jesus' church was a multinational, multilingual, megachurch of Jewish believers. Can you imagine being in a church like that on day one? It had to have been a colorful, vibrant, and exciting church, a true kaleidoscope of people. Luke's inspired account in Acts goes on to tell the remarkable story of how the church advanced geographically as well as culturally. In Acts chapter 6, the church wisely resolved the conflict between the Grecian Jewish believers and the Hebrew Jewish believers. In Acts chapter 8, the church advanced into Samaria, which was really big because the Jewish believers had never associated themselves with Samaritans in the past. They considered the Samaritans as half-breeds that had intermarried with pagan people. In fact, when they would talk about going north from Jerusalem, they would oftentimes cross the Jordan to the east and go up the eastern side of the Jordan to come back into the area of Galilee so they wouldn't even have to go through Samaria and those Samaritan people. But God was doing something amazing. And it was big. And Luke relates also the story in Acts chapter 8 of how an Ethiopian government official came to faith in Jesus and was baptized. And so now the gospel could go into Africa. But as the word of God spread through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, it was clear Jesus' final directives to the apostles were being fulfilled. God was doing something amazing. Jesus had promised his followers in Acts 1 verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it was coming true. Well, approximately seven to ten years after the church's beginning, the one barrier that had not been broken was the Gentile barrier. The followers of Jesus had not, not yet actively taken the gospel to non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. So the Holy Spirit had to intervene and do what the Spirit loves to do, open the doors to people's hearts and inspire the disciples to spread the word. You see, folks, during New Testament times, the big race problem wasn't about skin color like it is today, but rather it was about the dividing wall of hostility that separated people of Jewish heritage from the Gentiles. 
The rich history of the Jews made them a proud and distinctive people. The Jewish nation was, in fact, God's chosen people. They were the circumcised ones, the keepers of the law, the people of the covenant. God had given them the oracles oracles of God. They were the children of Abraham. Jesus himself was Jewish. But one negative consequence of being chosen is the temptation to become arrogant. Now there were Old Testament laws that were intended to keep Jews separated from the outside influence of false religions. But by the time of Jesus, some zealous Jews in their self-righteous pride had become prejudiced and hostile towards Gentiles, something God never intended. They felt superior to the Gentiles. In fact, with some, they were so extreme, they thought the only reason God created Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. So for nearly a decade, the church only included people that had Jewish backgrounds, with the exception of the converts to Judaism that were present on the day of Pentecost. But God wasn't done yet. (coughs) Acts chapter 10, that you've turned to, tells the inspiring account of how God opened the door of the kingdom to all the Gentiles. God selected Peter to convert the first Gentiles. I mean, after all, God had given him the keys of the kingdom. He had used them on the day of Pentecost to open the doors of salvation unto the Jews. And now he's going to get to do that to the Gentiles as well. But before that could happen, God had to deal with Peter's prejudices. That's right, even the great apostle Peter that boldly proclaimed the risen Savior in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, he was hesitant to embrace the Gentiles. And so to get Peter's attention, the Lord spoke to him in a vision. In Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, here's what it says. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. The men that were on their journey was from the household of Cornelius. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Happened three times. I doubt if the number three was Peter's favorite number. And most of you recall why. Because Peter said he would never leave the Lord's side, but Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Sure. And probably the number three reminded Peter of his least favorite animal, a rooster. (laughs) But it did get Peter thinking, and while Peter's trying to figure out and interpret the meaning of the vision, these strangers from the household of Cornelius approached the gate and asked for Peter. Because, you see, the day before Peter received that vision, the Lord had sent an angel to Cornelius. 
and told him to send some men to Joppa and bring back Peter to Caesarea. Who's Cornelius? Well, he's an Italian officer in the Roman military. He and all his family were God-fearing people. The Bible says he gave charitably to those in need and that he prayed to God continually. But there was one caveat, however. He was an unclean, impure, uncircumcised Gentile. But nevertheless, the Lord had chosen him to be the first Gentile in God's kaleidoscopic kingdom. And when Peter went outside to meet Cornelius' men, they explained to him how an angel had spoken to Cornelius and told him to send for Peter. Well, Peter welcomed them all in the following morning, along with some other Jewish brethren that went with Peter. They started their journey to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. And when they stopped for the night, don't you think Peter probably had a hard time going to sleep that night? Still trying to figure out what God was up to. Well, sometime the following day, they arrived at Cornelius' place in Caesarea. Peter was about to do something that he had never done before in his life. Enter the home of a Gentile. I can only imagine what was going on in Peter's mind as he entered that home. Smell the aroma of Italian food. Wonder if they were having Italian sausage that day. Huh. Realizing he was breaking every rule in the book as far as the Jewish law went. And as he looks around, he sees a house filled wall to wall with Gentiles. All close friends and relatives of Cornelius. And Peter's introductory remarks kind of reveal what was heavy on his heart. Because Peter said, you're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? That's an unusual and rather awkward way to start a sermon, don't you think? It'd be like me getting up here on a Sunday morning and say, you know, I really don't want to be here among you kind of people. But God told me I needed to come, so I'm here. Now, what do you want? I mean, that's kind of the way this comes across, all right? Peter still had all this prejudice that he has to work through. So it's an unusual way to start a sermon. But Peter openly confessed his prejudicial feelings, went on to say, I realize now how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one that fears him and does what is right. So Peter finally comes to realize and understand the full meaning of the vision he had had the day before. Wasn't about eating lizards or snakes or pork chops. It was about Peter's bigotry. That's what it was about. The way Peter felt about eating unclean food was really how he felt about the Gentiles. And the Lord, he's telling Peter to love Gentiles and to treat them as equals and even more than that, to reach them with the gospel. And while Peter was preaching, and as the Gentile audience was coming to faith in Jesus, God settled the matter of the acceptance of the Gentiles once and for all. Not just for Peter's sake, but also for the sake of the brothers that had come with Peter. And later on, they're going to have to explain their actions to the other brothers in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit disrupted Peter's sermon with an event similar to what had happened on the day of Pentecost to the disciples about 10 years earlier. 
Because all of a sudden these Gentiles, Cornelius' household, were miraculously speaking in tongues. Can't you picture Peter at that point? Maybe with a wry smile on his face. Turning to those Jewish brethren that came with him and said, Anyone object to baptizing these people? And that's exactly what they did. Peter ordered that these Gentiles be immersed in water into Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. And the Gentiles were now accepted into God's kaleidoscopic kingdom. And if you think big deal, well, you ought to think big deal because it is a big deal. This is what allowed you to come into God's kingdom. How many Jews are here today? How many Gentiles? Yeah. This is a big deal for us, folk. You know that when God was selecting David to succeed King Saul as king of Israel, he said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The apostles were slow to understand the scope of Jesus' mission because their prejudices had blinded them to seeing people from God's point of view. I think we still do that today. Our society and culture is preoccupied with external looks rather than what's really on the inside. People today obsess over superficial matters like the color of skin. Fair-skinned people can make themselves darker through going to tanning booths or tan from a bottle or whatever, whereas some darker-skinned people have been known to bleach their skin white. Go figure. But God does not care about the color of our skin. He cares about the condition of our hearts. That's the main thing. He's interested in our inner being, our souls, our salvation. And that's why Jesus commanded the apostles and we disciples today to spread the good news of the grace of God to everyone in every nation. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Little, big, it doesn't matter. He loves them all. And I appreciate the fact Alan picked out that song along with rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them, save them, go after them. And so the subject of the mission is very clear to go to all people in every nation, not just the Jewish nation, but all nations. And the New Testament mentions the Great Commission several times. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke 24, 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And Acts 1, 8 that we've already read, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's to go everywhere. Every nook and cranny you can think of. And if the apostles could be so easily distracted from what was so important to Jesus, it isn't shocking that modern day followers of Jesus can misunderstand the content and the importance of Jesus' mission as well. I believe every generation of followers of Jesus need to renew their convictions 
and readjust their focus and restore their commitment to this mission. This is the mission of the church. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now he's turned that mission over to us to carry out until he returns. His desire remains the same. He, he's the same today as he was yesterday. He still wants all people in all nations to come to know God and to have salvation in him. That's why it's imperative that we, his followers, be united in heart in this mission. You know, unity is a great witness for God, just as much as disunity is a great witness for Satan. And we've seen in recent, well, in recent days and months and years, we've seen the disunity, the racial disunity, that is one of Satan's favorite strategies, and how it's divided people and caused so many problems in our nation today, in fact, around the world. And Satan knows that that can hurt the testimony of the church. You'll remember in this service, you people will remember Dr. Martin Luther King back in the 1960s. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stated during his speech at Western Michigan University, now listen close to what he said. He said, we must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. This is tragic, and nobody of honesty can overlook this. 1963, 60 years ago. And I wonder how today's Christians would respond to Dr. King's concerns. Does his statement still ring true? Is the church today still one of the most segregated institutions upon the earth? Has the enemy of our souls deceived us into thinking that Jesus' ongoing desire for unity, including racial unity, in the body of Christ, has he deceived us into thinking that's an unrealistic dream? Not worth our time, prayers, and efforts? I pray not. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we need to ask ourselves some questions from time to time. Like, do I fellowship with Christians from different ethnic backgrounds? Am I hesitant to evangelize people of other cultural groups? Are all my deep spiritual relationships with people of my own skin color? Am I bitter toward people that have a different skin color than I have? You see, Jesus taught that our love for one another would serve as a strong witness to the unbelieving world that we're genuine followers of Jesus. But the opposite is also true. When we mistreat or look down on or dislike others, especially based only on the color of their skin, then the world will question the authenticity of our discipleship. For centuries, Christians have sought to restore Jesus' church, the New Hope Christian Church, is a part of what we call the Restoration Movement. 
to, re, to, to restore the church as it was in what we read in the book of Acts, to its pristine purity. And we've sought to do that by emphasizing teachings concerning church doctrine, church leadership structure, worship practices, among other things. But I wonder maybe what hasn't been emphasized enough is the restoration of the Jesus standard of love for one another. A kind of love that can break through barriers that divide people by groups, including the walls of racial division. You see, as Christians, we should never forget God's word has the power to change our hearts. We should never forget that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against our adversary, Satan. We should never forget that Jesus, the great physician, is the only one that can heal the wounds in our soul and in our nation as well. And as we read our Bibles today and we listen to God's Spirit in our hearts, we need to be compelled to recommit to, to obey Jesus' new command to love others just like He loves us, regardless of who those people are. And our motivation should be very simple, that we want to hear Jesus say what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, the last thing that I want to hear Jesus say to me is, well, Bill, you kind of blew it. You messed it up. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced those things without neglecting the former things that he talks about, like in Matthew 23, 23. You see, it, it's simply not okay to have our doctrines right while our hearts are wrong. And I believe that God's Spirit wants to do something big in our day, and maybe he's already doing that through some revival that's sweeping parts of our nation. Perhaps initiating another revival movement that focuses on unleashing love to a wounded world that results in turning our world upside down. So would you make the commitment to obey Jesus' most vital and new command to really love one another regardless of who it is. You know, before Jesus commanded his disciples to go, his first, he first commanded them to wait, to wait for God's power in Acts 1 verse 4. Well, we don't have to wait any longer. His power has come. His spirit has come. We can walk in his power. God's powerful kaleidoscopic kingdom has been unleashed upon the world. And the only question is, will you partner with Jesus in building that visible kingdom on earth? He's commissioned us to go into all the world. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us. We have the gospel message, which is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believe. And all that's needed is us. All that's needed is our availability to join in and to get the job done. And when that happens, we fulfill God's will. John writes in Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Well, let's do our part in making sure that every person 
no matter their background, their ethnic group, their culture, their skin color, no matter what. Let's make sure they hear the gospel and are part of that great multitude forever. Amen? Amen. I'm done preaching now. <laughs> As Minnie Pearl would say, we're all through now. But don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Let's do what God has called us to do. We're looking at how he unleashed his church upon the world and how he had to work in the hearts of his disciples to overcome prejudices that kept them separated from people. If he needs to work on us in that way, let him do his work. And then let's get to work and get it done. Let's stand and sing.